Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. Now, on this week's episode, we're actually going to split this into two parts. So for the next two episodes, you're going to be hearing from my good friend, Dave Lustig, all about the fine art of home winemaking and why he thinks that home brewers make better winemakers than winemakers do. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Hey, so welcome everybody uh, to this particular show. I know this is a little different. We're normally all about brewing, but hey, really, we're all about fermentation. So given that this is now in July, I think when we're going to hear this show, wine season is actually just around the corner if people are wanting to tackle the idea of actually making wine instead of beer. And I figured, well, you know, why let me talk about it instead we actually get an, uh, an actual vintner to talk about somebody who actually knows what they're talking about as opposed to somebody who's faking how they're how they're working it. So Dave, say hi to everybody. Hi everybody. Welcome to Old Oak Cellars. Dave Lustig has been a member of both the Los Angeles Cellar Makers, which is the LA uh, home winemaking club, you know, that is run out of the same shop as the beer club that we're both part of, which is the Maltos Falcons. And for the record, the beer club has the better band. <laughs> We have one guy who's in the Rockabilly Hall of Fame, and that's about the best we have in the wine club. Turns out music and beer go together wonderfully. They sure do. So now, how long have you been making, well, let's start with wine and then how you got into beer as well. I started making wine in the early 90s, shortly after getting married and decided to be a homebody for a while. My sister is a chef. She worked at a high-end restaurant in Mammoth, and being Mammoth-type people, they would go camping and wine tasting. 
and the owner of the restaurant would actually facilitate that. He'd get his wait staff trained, and he would be buying wine for the next season. So this always happened in the late spring, early summer thing. Nancy and I would go along and join the campers and get educated and really got, got hooked. We honeymooned up in that area and uh, during harvest. And at one point we were in a winery and the guy behind the counter said, are you guys in a hurry? And I said, no, not really. It was a Tuesday, I think. And he said, well, I'll be back in a bit. And he disappeared, completely disappeared, hmm. gone. I'm thinking, you know, kid fell at school. What's going on here, right? Turns out he said he went home to go punch down his Pinot Noir. <laughs> he had a few tons of Pinot Noir in his garage. And so all the way driving down I-5 going home, I'm thinking, I like Pinot Noir. I have a garage. So I got a winemaking kit for Christmas from my wife. And it was, you know, 28-day winemaking kit. Can of concentrate and that kind of stuff. I never made it. I figured if it was going to be ready in 28 days, I didn't want to drink it. But I read the book, found the winemaking club, jumped in, made a whole bunch of really bad batches that first summer trying to get the kinks worked out so I didn't waste waste the good stuff when it showed up. Started making things like Napa Cab and fun stuff like that and uh, got, got into it really big. Noticed that occasionally some people would cross over from the beer making club to the wine making club and do a really good job. Started paying attention, went to a meeting or two and started off mostly all grain, but I do a little bit of extract. I've noticed more cross-pollination from the beer side to the wine side than necessarily the wine side to the beer side. We've got a few going on. We actually had a, a, a the wine club had a brew day. Actually, we've had two this year, and uh, it actually seems to be the, the ladies that are taking to the brewing. See, and, and, that, and that's funny because you normally think, at least if you're going by stereotype, oh, you know, the women are about the wine and the men are about or about the beer, and I'm pretty certain there are probably some guys out there right now who are listening to go, hmm, you know, I could make wine for my wife, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. I've done it. Right. It's a, yeah, and, I've, and let's be frank, I've also made the wine for myself. All right, moving into the homebrew world, how long ago was that? Oh, I think I brewed my first batch, late 90s. And then uh, you've been hanging around ever since? and Hanging around, going to occasional meetings and parties. and We should uh, we should have a little bit of wine while we're, while okay. we're doing we, this. Cause, this is our 2011 Cabernet. It's not 100% Cabernet. Everything we do is a little bit blended. Learn that at home pretty quickly, that you have to mix things up a little bit. This particular year, uh, my spice grape of choice was a uh, Petit Verdot. So there's a little bit of Petit Verdot in, in our Merlot, our red blend, and our Cabernet from that year. Coming up, I have Malbec and then Cap Franc for the year after that. To set the scene for everybody, we are in Pasadena. We're on the more industrial side of Pasadena, and we are not... I think when you tell people that you have a winery, you know, they assume like the big picturesque vineyard estate. Yeah, and a nice window and all that kind of stuff. There's not a window to be had here. No, we are in an industrial space in Pasadena. You could very easily see a brewery being in a space like this. And we're surrounded by oak barrels and it's a very functional space. And you, I mean, you run tastings out of here uh, once or twice a month, right? Right. People can find the information online, both on Facebook and I think you have... Orlosellers.com, yep. And you can even join a wine club and get wine shipped to you. Or come by and pick it up if you're local. There you go. See? With grapes, I mean, wh one of the great advantages that I think that brewers have is we have these ingredients that come to us. I mean, it's agricultural in nature, but agricultural with a lot of mechanization put behind it and a lot of standardization, right? I, I have regularly joked that you guys cheat because you actually have ingredients. You know, we have produce. Yeah. You have ingredients. We have things that have been handled by scientists to make the exact same thing. Wine is infamous for the fact like, oh, you know, 
2011 is a fantastic year or 2011 is a bum year or you're really sort of at the mercy of the grape. Here in California, we're lucky because I mean, where we're sitting here in Pasadena, we have a couple of big grape growing regions right around us, right? I mean, we have uh, Temecula with their grapes, the whole Santa Barbara area and the Central Coast area all the way up into Napa. Uh, We have easy access to, to grapes. As a home winemaker, how would you normally end up getting your grapes? Initially, I bought through the shop. You know, the shop was was a good facilitator of that. They get together and make a, make a large buy and go for some of the better quality grapes that you find out. But once you start playing around, you can find out some of the big growers will sell the small guys. Most of them won't, or they'll sell at a batch size that need you need to get a few people together for. The home winemaker sizes run from 100 pounds, gives you five gallons, to 300 pounds, gives you 15, which fills up a beer keg. So there's the whole maximum of it. It takes a lot of good beer to make good wine it's done in the hot fall you know you're you're out there processing we, we do our processing up north by the way our, our business model is a little bit non-standard winery we go up north rent some space and make a mess up there because they actually know what to do with the skins from a couple tons of grapes and stuff and then we ship it down here and we do the aging and the blending down here earlier you know we were talking like a lot of people i think have that picturesque view of, of a winery and a vineyard and the big estate house that you're paying for when you buy the wine truth be told i mean a good portion of wine, you know, particularly smaller lots of wine, are produced exactly like how we're talking about here, where the winery and the vintner isn't necessarily growing the grapes, right? But you are, you know, out there kind of finding the grapes and choosing the lots that that you're using to discover, okay, these are the sorts of flavors I want, right? And, and the bigger the lot, the more the growers will listen to you. If you want a hundred pounds of grapes from some winery that's cranking out four tons an acre times a hundred acres, they don't really have the facilities. I did talk a grower into getting some good grapes one year, and he just kind of, I showed up with my little. 40-gallon buckets, and he just kind of laughed. Handed me a pitchfork and said, yeah, help yourself. I was a blip on the radar screen. It was was nothing to to worry about. You were the grapes being swept off on the the winery floor at the end of the day. Just about, yeah. But when you start working with people or get up to barrel size lots there's a really good book on winemaking from davis i think you can get the pdf for free now they basically advocate that the safe way to make wine is to do it in barrel size lots have a barrel or two make it make a barrel's worth each year you've got okay this ties into some of the things about grapes and growers 100 pounds of grapes represents eight or ten vines maybe 12 or 15 depending on how they're cropped that's a small piece of the vineyard you get to a larger batch you get more homogeneity you get more you get the average out. Right. I had a friend who used to go out and crack a dawn and get grapes in Cucamonga, and he turned me on to the winery guy, the vineyard guy, and I was not much of a morning person, and I would go out there at 10 or 11 o'clock and get grapes, and he'd be, been out there at 6 or 7, and our wines were totally different. And he realized one day when he went out there, he took a look, and he was getting the pick from the corner. The first part of the vineyard where they were starting to pick for the day, and it was kind of you know a little drier because the irrigation didn't work so well in the corner and that kind of stuff. And he realized that it really was vine dependent. So the bigger batches give you some security there. They do take some other way to handle the material. I mean, you, I've got a hand crank crusher destemmer. You can crank your way through 100 pounds of grapes pretty pretty easy. By the time you're doing 1,000 pounds, it's a little tougher. That's where the, the friends and beer comes in. 1,000 pounds will get you the barrel, get you the 55 gallons. But you have to move it. You have to deal with pumps at that point. You know, With carboy, you can still pick up and put on a counter and so I still do that. Uh, six and a half are getting tougher for me as I get a little bit older here, but I can still muscle them around. And with these barrels that you have up here in the racks, I mean, well, I assume you're using like diaphragm pumps got to move the... Yeah, we've double diaphragm air pumps are what we like to use. You can be gentle and you don't have electricity hanging around by aqueous solutions. I have no plans electrocuting myself, so, you know, the pneumatic works well. Pressure's a little noisy, but it's okay. It's gentle. I've got a pressure regulator right at the pump so you can really slow it down. And it'll pass a little bit of solids. That's the other nice thing about it. Uh, wine doesn't clear up as quickly as beer. Okay, grapes float.
like we said here in California, you're lucky because you have access to growers. You, you have the ability to go find a lot that you can go grab some grapes from. But given how versed you are in the home wine culture, for people who aren't necessarily near a grape growing region, what sort of options do they have? There are a lot of options with shipping and stuff. It turns out that even during Prohibition, home wine and beer making was still legal. And the vineyards that survived through Prohibition were the ones that geared into shipping to, you know, generally speaking, Italians. Train cars to New York. I've got pictures in some of the old history books around here. They just put them in, for lack of a better phrase, gunny sacks, stacked them on a flatbed and headed east. There are a lot of options for that. Kits work pretty good, too. The You know, they're kind of like concentrate in, in brewing. The, the, there's lots of good kits where they source from good growers. Brem is a guy who has freezing facilities, and he will ship you a frozen five-gallon pail of grapes virtually any day of the year. He's got vineyards both uh, in Napa and Sonoma, but also up in Washington. Get some of his whites from up there. The, the reds are crushed grapes. The whites are clarified juice, ready to, ready to go. They're not inexpensive, but they're good quality. And I had a friend who, for some reason, had something that always got in the way of fall, and he never got fresh grapes. And he, every March, he, he started his winemaking season by you know, shipping in some buckets. Many shops will go collectively to bring grapes in. There are some other packing houses that bring stuff up and out from South America and that kind of stuff. But they tend to go East Coast. You don't get a lot of them on the West Coast. Well, we, we have grapes, yeah, right? The demand's less over. That said, East Coast viticulture is really taking off. They're beginning to dial in what varietals will grow in which climates and stuff. For Vintner, I was talking to from Virginia, says for every 20-acre parcel he buys, he really only gets four or five plantable acres between exposure and that kind of stuff. But he's been doing this for a while now, and he's got several hundred acres of mostly Portuguese grapes. It's amazing how far the grape has come from its origins in Armenia. Yes, yes, because we like what it does. Yeah. Touching back on the kits real quick, because I think those are going to be the, the easiest way for most people to get involved. Really, there's two forms. And you mentioned the first one with your first kit, which are those concentrate cans like Alexander, Sun Country, Merlot concentrate. They're basically cooked down jammy juice. I, I've, I've used them making beer to add, you know, kind of grape must to a beer, that worked pretty well. I, I can only imagine the wine that would be made from them would be pretty flat out terrible. That's not what they want you to have happen. They want you to actually make something you like and go back and buy more. So it's actually better than it sounds for having taken a canned juice and putting, you know, treated like a jello, you know, two cans of water to one can of juice and, you know, step back and let it go. They're not awful. They're not, they're not great. But the the less concentrated things are, the closer to regular juice and grapes they are. And they sell kits now for making 20 liters of wine that come with you know, 18 liters of juice practically. These will be in those kind of big cardboard boxes with usually some sort of nice artwork on them. And they're, they're basically just barely vacuum concentrated juice that's basically done at harvest time. And they're pretty rock solid. And they are. They're pretty hard to screw up. And yeah, they give you, you know, 20 steps and they, they tend to say, you know, put packet A in and stir and that right. kind of stuff. They don't actually tell you the chemistry and what's going on and let you know that you're just putting in some metabisulfite to, you know, keep the oxygenation down at the end or something like that. They just, but you know, they are prescriptive and they work. It's a good way to start. You don't get the exact feel of what it's like working with the whole grapes because you don't have the solids and that kind of stuff, but it's still a good way to get going. And now if you get, if you actually get your hands on grapes from, your homebrew shop or from a, a vineyard. Let's just walk through the basic process. Cause I mean, the first thing is that you got to get the grapes off, off the stems. Right. Right. 
And so usually you, you refer to a hand crank machine that's out there, right. but a lot of places also have, you know, electrified or motorized machines that will do it, you know, particularly when you get into those large lots. Yeah, there, there's always a, a, a growth curve for winemakers. It seems just like homebrewers where, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, I've got the $5,000 sculpture. There's the home winemaker thing where suddenly it's like, well, I have a variable volume, a variable capacity uh, tank, and I've got a Because you never, you never get the same amount of juice out of the same pound of grapes every year. It's always different. Yep, that kind of stuff. First things first, we get the grapes off the vines or off the stems. They get crushed. And so what's the difference between red and white? With the red wine, you keep the stems around, the seeds and, and the skins around because that's where the color and the tannins come from. Surprisingly, even the darkest black grape, when you squeeze that grape right into your hand, out, right off the vine, the juice is clear, completely clear. The color comes from spending time with the skin. Rosés are something that gets a little bit of skin time, then the skins get taken away. Whites basically get taken away. Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris, it's actually a grayish pinky grape and it'll give you a lot of color in a hurry. So you have to, you know, squish it and separate it from the juice and get it, get it going from there. So like white wine for people who are trying to envision this at home, if you're doing this at home, it's basically the white wine juice goes straight into the carboy. Little, little, little chemistry magic, you know, maybe some metabisulfite or something in there to, to do some knockdown. And, but otherwise you pretty much ferment it just like it's Hey, it's apple juice. Exactly. Similar approach. Squishing, pressing, that's always that's one of the harder parts for, for the home people. I bought a small level uh, pneumatic or hydraulic so I can just hook mine up to the hose. I don't have to sit there with a the ratchet and a big stick going crank, 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 click, 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 pressing and squishing it all out. And then that's what you do in order to get the juice off the grapes, like with the white wine. You do that immediately with the white wine. Some people right. do it without even crushing. Oh, they just, they just oh, flat out crush. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, to minimize the skin contact time, because if you crush it by the time you get it in there and start squeezing, you've had some time on the skins and you start picking up tannins and stuff. Interesting. Uh, but on the red wine side, we get a crush. We get the we get the juice running, but we also get the skins and everything. I, I know a lot of times it seems like for basic home fermentation, you get a big white food grade trash can, and all of that goes in there. Corner restaurant supply, yep, all yep. that goes in there. Tricks of the trade: you do things like you start by trying to grab the brown leaves that are floating around in there and get them out first because they turn purple with the juice and they look like grape skins. So mm-hmm. I always start with the brown leaves first, and then the green ones, even though I suspect the green ones are the ones that you know, taste the worst. It's like Rinse the rice before you cook it. There is, there's always pieces in there. If you get machine harvested fruit, you get pieces of the irrigation system and stuff in there too, which is always, always fun. <laughs> in the big industrial things, one of the things that they have in the process after the stuff comes in from the machine picking is a big giant magnet to get the metal pieces of irrigation and trellising and stuff back out of, out of there. You can also do it by hand. Uh, for many years, I joked that my left hand was crusher and my right hand was destemmer because I would sit down in the evening, you know, pick up your grapes in the day, sit down in the evening after dinner and just pick them off. Uh, you get a very clean pick when you do that because you can be picky and you can take your time and dangle the spiders down into the plants next door and that kind of stuff and let, let them go on their way. Thank you, Spider, for protecting the grapes. Yes. And uh, we don't want you in the juice. Just, <laughs> just nothing personal. Your, your job yeah. is done. Go away. Right. right or go work in my gar- my veggie garden. Well, winemakers I learned under early on was John Dame from the shop and he, he always called that stuff the uh, the salt and pepper, the spice, and he didn't worry about it too much. I picked the you know, caterpillar out and that kind of stuff, but you usually... Yeah, that stuff's either handled before you get it or it's invisible because you, somebody else has crushed it for you and you weren't there at the time to sort it out. It's already done. It seems very much like from a brewer's point of view, you know, brewers, we get things out of the kettle and freak out about everything sanitation-wise. This is now in the vessel. Don't breathe. 
In fact, wear a mask, wear gloves. Don't even look at it. Carry your bottles around upside down so dust doesn't fall in and all right. that kind of stuff, right? And every every winemaker I've ever met is kind of like, oh, 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 there's something in the in the must. Here, reach right in, hairy arm, fish it out. <laughs> right. Yep. I do a lot of my punching down by by hand and with my arms and my stuff like that. Among other things, you get a better feel for the thermal dynamics of the of the must. Well, let's explain punching down because I mean we know that, but the people who are beer makers won't. won't. When you stick a straw in a can of soda, it gets bubbles on it and it floats up doesn't sit there at the bottom. The grape skins get the CO2 bubbles from the fermentation. They float up to the top. They form a really nice insulating blanket and they start to dry out there. If they're drying out, they're not actually dissolving and absorbing and adsorbing back and forth with the wine, wine juice as it's fermenting. So you, you lose that. So what you want to do is mix that up and also break up that insulation blanket to keep it from getting too hot. We tend to think, oh, wine fermentation, you don't have to worry so much about, at least from a brewer's perspective, like beer, beer must be between this sort of thing. Wine fermentation seems far more cavalier. Because it works, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, it's a simple sugar and it's going fast and you get, you're starting at a lower pH than beer and you're getting an alcohol content that's, well, it used to be way more than beer, but now it's just, you know, slightly above a, you know, an imperial something. But you've got that extra protectiveness of having it. The tannins in the, in the red wine are also good for scavenging oxygen and protecting things and that sort of stuff too. So you've got a, something that worked out really easy to do and not spoil too badly. It's still sensitive enough that you want to break up that cap, not only to keep them absorbing in the wine, but also so that you can bleed off some of the heat of the fermentation. I had one red wine fermentation where I got lazy. It happens. And I didn't punch down, and my fermentation stalled out, I think, because of the heat. We, we all know about trying to keep our yeast happy, whether it's pitching a big starter or whatever. And so heat is a, is a stress factor. And red wine fermentations often run up into the 90s, yeah. which is getting close to you know stressful for you know me when it's hot out and all that kind of stuff, too. So I can imagine the yeast are having their problems. The temperature ranges given on, on winemaking yeast are much wider than you see in the brewing yeast there, you know. Some people feel you have to get that hot temperature in there to really get the extraction out of the skins, and some people would rather go cool and keep things around. When you walk in and smell a fermentation, whether it's a beer or wine and stuff, it's always a, it's always a great smell, and we all love it. But it occurred to me very early on that what I'm smelling in the fermentation isn't going to be in the glass later because right. it's gone. Temperature's the easy way to you know keep that down. It sounds like then you prefer to kind of keep your your fermentations down on the lower side. I, I run at the bottom, sometimes even below the recommendation, the ranges and stuff. Generally speaking, there are times I've let things get warm in a in a part of a batch or something like that. For the winery here, our batches are big enough. We use industrial cooling type stuff. At home, if you're in a 45, 40 gallon type trash can with the sides and stuff, you're, you're not really going to overheat too badly. Even if you forget to punch down a little bit, but you'll you'll draw the the, vine- the nasty fruit flies that give you vinegar and all that kind of stuff. Though if you have that cap up there, the outside world is smell. Just trying to think when you do the cooler fermentation. I mean, we always talk about in the wine world that so a big difference between European wine and California wine or a lot of American wines is fruit expressiveness. Uh, American wines are all about you know give me that fruit, give me give me that jam, right. European wines, particularly the French wines, tend to be much more about give me the flavor of the earth, the terroir, right? And so they do, they like makes my little corner of the of the vineyard growing world different. And yeah. how do I express it, right? When you're doing your cool fermentation, what what do you think that gives you in the wine? Well, it definitely pushes the fruit mm-hmm. because it keeps the aromas in there, and, and we all know that aromas have to taste anyway. Mm-hmm. So you're pushing the uh, keeping the aromas in in down. As the yeasts go slower, they're spending, you get more time from, for lack of a better phrase, alternate metabolic pathways. The yeast isn't just staying alive and reproducing. It's doing other types of food and playing around and that kind of stuff. And that's where you get these other compounds that later 
come back into the wine and become precursors for your, your esters and fun stuff like that. Keeping it in there so that you have it later to be expressed. You can always shake a bottle and blow it off if you don't like it kind of a thing. And I've actually seen people do that. Riedel people who sell all the fancy stemware with a different shaped glass for every every grape that they've ever heard of. And some they've made up. And some they, they always start their little presentation of their quote-unquote flavor delivery systems. They're not glass. But they decant the wine and they're talking to you and they're shaking the bejesus out of it. They're getting it past anything that's going to come off the wine early before they put it out. Yeah, so you can change it later on, too. Mm-hmm. So if you if you, if you you lose it in fermentation, you don't have it to lose later if you choose to. The choice has been made. So cooler temperatures tend to give you higher alcohol because you haven't had it evaporate during the fermentation process. When you're talking at 80, 90 degrees, things are definitely going to be evaporating out of it. That's not usually a problem with California grapes where we seem to have plenty of sun, but in some of the more northern climates, getting things as, as ripe as they should be, doesn't always happen, and so you're playing with slightly lower sugar level to start with. There are also different grape strains that have variations in how whether they produce extra glycerol and less alcohol and that kind of stuff. I tend to play with some of those. One of the ones I like turns out to actually be known to the brewing community as a lager yeast. It's a ovum instead of Saccharomyces and uh, produces it often as much as a percent alcohol less. Huh. And you get that in extra glycerol for nice mouthfeel and perceived sweetness and things like that. So when you start playing with that, you realize that you're thinking like a brewer, you know, looking at different yeast strains and what they can bring to the table and stuff. So we tend to, I mean, we're halfway through the winemaking process as we're talking here. And I mean, it's a fairly straightforward process on the surface, right? Right. When you, when you just lay out the steps, one, two, three, four, it looks fairly straightforward. But I mean, as you're obviously talking, I mean, there are all these other little factors that, that come into play that I think brewers don't usually see because I know a lot of brewers will say, oh, winemaking is just cheating, right? You know, that's, that's too easy. But then it turns out, okay, well, yeah, the main process is fairly easy in terms of describing it and the mechanics of it. But then there's all the other stuff that goes into play. Early on, helping people learn to make wine and doing some seminars and teaching with the club and that kind of stuff, I realized that there's a very strong difference between what is necessary and what is what we call a style choice. You need yeast, maybe you don't. But generally speaking, you need yeast, so we say you need yeast, and we leave it at that. One of the old slideshows I put on the PowerPoint that I show shows the ex-president of the winemaking club taking the the packet of dehydrated yeast and just sprinkling it right into the trash can. That works, but you get a really bad survival rate on the yeast when you do that because you haven't rehydrated them all nicely and got them going for it. Starter technology is standard in brewing. It's not so much in winemaking other than the, the, the packet says, you know, rehydrate and, you know, 100 milliliters of 85 degree water, wait 15 minutes and pitch. Right. You know, that's not the same as growing up a nice big healthy starter and that kind of stuff. If you're somewhere advanced, they'll tell you, oh, use some GoFirm in your in your rehydration liquid. That is a big difference. So, I mean, like when, when you get that juice into the fermenter, yeah, I assume that normally, kind of like in cider making and in a couple of experiences I've done, it gets in usually mixed with like some metabisulfite to, you know, help kind of stun down a wild yeast. And then you have to wait 24 hours, let that kind of do its magic. And then you can pitch in the yeast. And in the wine world, it's almost all dry yeast. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Why yeast is making some liquid now. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a couple of liquid wine yeasts out there, but it, the standard practice is, is dry yeast and no problems there. So red wine, we do the punching down. We keep the mixing going. We get all that done. Eventually, your fermentation ceased. How long does fermentation normally take, primary? Uh, 10 days-ish. Now, by the end of that 10 days with your red wine, I mean, your white wine's just doing its thing. With your red wine... After 10 days, have you, have you finished doing all your color extraction? Pretty much, yeah. Wine is done fermenting. The cap, I think, what usually falls, right? Yeah, well, there's still CO2 in there even after you're done with fermentation. So if 
getting to the point where the cap actually sinks on you is getting into the range of what they call extended maceration, where you're now spending extra time on the skins and seeds to try to get whatever you more can out of more color more. There's a technique that's used a lot in the new world style we were talking about before, where they call it a cold soak or a pre-soak. I like cold soak. Yeah. That gets you an aqueous extraction. 10 days later, you're at 12, 13, 14% alcohol. Now you're getting an alcoholic extraction, which is going to be different compounds coming out of the stuff. And, and a cold soak is literally, you keep the juice cold on the skins yeah. before you start fermentation and you let that go for a couple of days. Right, somewhere around 40 degrees. And actually the, the, uh, the standard thinking is you actually pitch some of your original yeast in the cold, somewhere around a quarter of your original yeast that you're going to be using, you put in there so that it begins to start populating the must. So that way, that way, when you let it warm up, it's already it's there's already some going. of it in there that has taken over the niches and it hasn't let the wild stuff right. fill in. Brett's the, not establishing itself, itself and that kind of right. thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was the other fun thing between. Well, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. Brett later, I guess. But yeah, we'll do some of that. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files. We hoped that you enjoyed this first part of an exploration of the fine art of vintning at home. You know, like time to get those grapes ready. It is just about grape season. So if you are somewhere where grapes are going to be available to you, start watching. Talk to your local homebrew shop. Talk to the people around you who do make wine. Find out where they're getting wine. And even if you're not in a place where you're going to get fresh wine grapes, don't forget to go explore those kits. They're actually pretty good quality. So go ahead. Make some wine. Have some fun. Be like Lucy. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and on just about every homebrew forum known to mankind. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, supporting the fight against pediatric cancer. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there. Mm -hmm.